Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld, where we continue our series, The Triumph of the Lamb, as we study the book of Revelation today in chapter 21, verses 1 to 4. So let's join Dr. Newfeld right now as he brings us a message entitled, When Everything is New. I fear there are a great many people who are Christians but have never known what it is to think like a Christian. You know, I've been to the odd graveside service where a pastor has said, you know, these are just the working clothes, and, you know, he's referring to the body of the deceased. This was not really him, he was saying. These were just the clothes that he wore when he was here on earth. You know, I was there at that funeral, and, well, when I heard that, my jaw just dropped. See, I knew that Aristotle and Plato Well, they would have been quite happy with that view of things, as would most of the ancient Greek philosophers, but the apostles and the prophets and Jesus, for that matter, well, they would have objected vigorously. Listen to Psalm 139, 13 and 14. They're the words of King David. He's not a Greek philosopher. He's a Hebrew believer. He said, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. See, in the Bible, it was not a lesser deity that formed the physical world. The Greeks thought that way, but the apostles and the prophets didn't. The Bible says that there is but only one God, fully righteous, infinitely glorious, and it was this God that made the physical world, along with what we now call the, you know, the scientific principles which make up the world that we live in. And at each stage of his creative process, God speaks out words. It's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. And when he creates man, a man and a woman, he says, it is very good. Indeed, physical reality, world of nature and our physical form is God's wonder. Being physical is not working clothes. It's essentially who we are. I know that someone's going to write me saying something that they've heard from one of, let's say, the word faith teachers who say, I'm a spiritual being who happens to live in a body. And my response is, well, you learned that from Plato, not from your Bible. The Bible says that you in physicality are fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, of course, that's not to say that we don't have a spirit or a soul. There is an aspect of our humanity that does exist even when the body dies. But even while that's so, that to be absent, as Paul says, from the body, is to be present to the Lord. While all of that is a glorious truth, it's also an equally glorious truth, that in the intermediate state, we await for the resurrection of the body. See, my mind is taken up in the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus had just appeared to his disciples, and they're startled and terrified. And Luke 24, verse 38 says, And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. You know, Jesus raised from the dead, had flesh and bones, skin, organs, all that other stuff. Or consider what Jesus said to Thomas. It's recorded in John 20, verse 27. Put your finger here and see my hands and put your hand and place it in my side. That is, I still bear the very marks of my crucifixion, which, as we know, Jesus will continue to bear throughout eternity. I say all of that because in our study of Revelation, we've now come to a new beginning, and we do well to ask ourselves, what is it that we are reading? Are we to take these words literally? And I think we are. So I'm reading Revelation 21, 1 to 4. 
Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. You know, a great many Bible teachers have tried to understand what John meant when he said he saw a new heaven and a new earth. And if you listened to me yesterday, I then quoted 2 Peter 3, verse 12, where Peter taught that the heavens will be set on fire and that all the heavenly bodies would melt as they burn. So clearly, Peter was expecting that the present order of things will one day be no more. And then in the next verse, verse 13, Peter says exactly what John saw in Revelation. Peter says, but according to his promise, we are awaiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, we might ask, Peter, which promise specifically are you referring to? And the answer might well lie in the end of Isaiah. See, in Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17, we read, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. And then in chapter 66, verse 22, For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring in your name remain. See, there's a promise in the First Testament and in the New Testament. It affirms this very same hope. And so just like the resurrection of the body of Jesus after he was crucified and he was crushed, so also shall the universe, after it was burned, shall be created new. I'm reminded of a conversation I had with my dad while he was lying on his deathbed. I remember he said one day, son, I, I've been thinking how much I'd, I'd just love to go to the mountains one more time. And I said, Dad, I need to remind you that you will go to the mountains again and breathe in the fresh air and hike through the woods, and I'm going to go with you. And he smiled and he said, ah, yeah, I'd forgotten. You know, John said, I saw that the first earth had passed away. Well, he had already said that a great white throne of judgment had appeared and that earth and sky had fled, and now we know that the universe is burned. But, says John, I saw a new heavens. And so from my vantage point, the new heavens will be like the raised body of Jesus. It will be like the old body, except it's not going to be subject to the former weaknesses. And in the case of the new heavens and the new earth, the world to come will not be plagued by what Paul called the groaning creation. No viruses, no aging, no death. But what did John mean when he said the sea would be no more? So let me suggest three possible interpretations of that text. The first is to take the phrase literally. In the New Age, the oceans will no longer exist. Well, another interpretation is to view the sea in a way in which it has been viewed by the ancient peoples. The sea was, for them, an uncrossable barrier. That is, almost all shipping was done within the sight of land. And to get too far out, well, that represented death. But if this view is correct, it is to say that the sea represents the uncrossable barrier between heaven and earth. You remember that Paul said, and here I'm quoting 2 Corinthians 5, verse 7, there he said, we walk by faith and not by sight. But in the age to come, the sea is no more in this sense. You see, the distance between the dwelling place of God has been erased. Our dwelling place on earth and the dwelling place of God are easily accessible to one another. Now, a third possibility is that the sea represents the fallen nations. 
You might remember that in Revelation 13, verse 1, it depicted the beast as coming out of the sea, meaning that he came out of the turbulent waters of humanity. And so if that's the case, John then means to communicate that the rebellion of cultures is now no more. Now, for my part, I feel I don't have to choose between option two and option three. The barrier between God and man is erased. And the turbulent human cultures that rebelled against God are also erased. This truly is a new order. So let's be clear. The new earth is earth made new. You and I will live on the earth for all of eternity. We are made to be physical, and we were made to live on the earth. And so in the age to come, God will not only provide new resurrection bodies for his people so that we live physically, but he will make the earth new so that we will live in a physical environment for all of eternity. But do not fear because the barrier keeping you from the throne of God will be taken away. Now then, what is this new heaven? Now, please don't think that the new heaven is as you might think of heaven or as it's described in Revelation chapter 4. You might remember in Revelation 4 verse 1, John wrote, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And, you know, and then with that, John is ushered into the throne room of God. So it's not that heaven that is no more. So please understand that the throne room of God is is never made new. It is and was and always will be the perfection of beauty and holiness. It doesn't grow old. It doesn't need renovation. No, no. The new heavens refer not to heaven, but to the heavens, meaning the cosmos. John sees that the entire universe will be made new. Now, given that the Bible teaches that God's people are given the charge to rule and reign with Christ for all of eternity over all the works of God's hands, we're left with a stunning vision of the entire created order, including the the cosmos, remade to reflect the grandeur and the greatness of God in a way that, well, I think we can only imagine. Dr. Neufeld wrote, there is a line near the end of the book of Revelation that sounds altogether intriguing. Revelation 21.5 says, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. All things. What can that mean? Well, according to the book of Revelation, this present world will die. Now, that's not just a theological statement. It's a statement meant to bring comfort to suffering Christians. This month, Dr. Neufeld presents the final volume of his study on the book of Revelation entitled The Triumph of the Lamb. Focusing on the final five chapters, you'll be uniquely engaged and encouraged to discover the incredible plan God has for eternity. And for this month only, we want to make the final volume available to you for only $19 or the entire four-volume series for $75. Both offers include shipping and taxes. So call today for The Triumph of the Lamb at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. go to Revelation 21, verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. You know, in this vision of things, John sees uh, not just a new heaven and a new earth, but he also sees a new Jerusalem. You know, Jerusalem, as you know, became the capital city of King David somewhere around 1000 BC. 
and since that time, Jerusalem became the subject of numerous psalms. Jerusalem is called the city of God. Or listen to Psalm 135, verses 5 and 6. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Or listen to Psalm 48, verses 1 and 2. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth, Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Now, Jerusalem, while it is in the Bible, the capital city of the earth, well, it's also a great disappointment. I mean, great wickedness was done there, and the city was anything but the city of peace. But God will not only make a new heaven and a new earth, he's also going to make a new Jerusalem. In Galatians 4, verse 26, Paul speaks about a Jerusalem that is from above, he says. Or listen to Hebrews 12, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, says the writer of Hebrews, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And so the picture in Revelation 21, verse 2, is of this heavenly Jerusalem coming down to earth. Now, I do know that there are those Bible teachers who argue that the new Jerusalem is actually a reference, well, to the church. But as we continue to read through this chapter, we'll get a description of the city in very physical terms, right down to the size dimensions of the city. And so I'm content to see the city in exactly the same physical terms as the Bible describes the new heavens and the new earth. I think we're meant to take this matter very literally. But why then is Jerusalem described as a bride adorned for her husband? Well, here I think John is giving us a wonderful description of the city. Let me put it in my own terms. I, as all married men do, we remember that day when we first saw our bride on our wedding day. You know, as Kathy appeared before me in her wedding dress, I must say, she took my breath away. I knew she was beautiful. I just didn't know until that day how beautiful she actually was. She was stunning. I remember her, and I remember my reaction to her. See, in the same way as Jerusalem descends from the dwelling place of God to earth, the utter beauty of the city will overwhelm God's people in the way that a bridegroom sees his bride. You know, we all have seen beautiful cities, but this one will be the perfection of beauty. Now to verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. See, here we see that the new Jerusalem is called the dwelling place of God. And if you're confused and are wondering, well, I thought the throne room described in Revelation 4, well, that's the dwelling place of God. So does the dwelling place of God now move from there to the new earth? But just so we understand, let's reflect on that phrase, the dwelling place of God. You know, in the First Testament, the tabernacle was built under the authority of Moses, and it was called God's dwelling place. And in Exodus 25, verse 8, when God gives Moses the command to build the tabernacle, God says, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell with them. That is, in the Holy of Holies, I mean, that was a symbol that God lived among his people. Notice that doesn't mean that God doesn't dwell in heaven, but it does mean that God has signaled that he is among his people. He lives among them. And the same is said when Solomon built a temple that replaced the tabernacle. You know, when Solomon dedicated the temple, you know, a part of his prayer, well, that's found in 1 Kings 8.27. So Solomon prays, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? 
Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. You know, that's to say, one has never to think that God, who is omnipresent, present to all spaces at all times, can ever be contained by one structure. God is present to all spaces at all times, but we also know that God chooses to reveal his splendor in a given place. You know, in the history of Israel, God revealed himself first in the tabernacle and then in the temple. And now then, we also know that this is true in the age to come. God never confines himself to the new Jerusalem, but God chooses for the sake of his redeemed people to make his presence known among them in a way that they have never known before. Now, I'm about to say something, something I'll repeat a few more times. We're not to think of our eternal dwelling as being inside of the new Jerusalem. Now, I have in this regard heard some of the strangest depictions of heaven that could be given. I mean, since the dimensions of the city are given, I've heard some believers work out how many people they think will be saved throughout history and then how much room each one of us will have in the new Jerusalem. I find such reckoning to be nothing short of bizarre. Listen, our eternal dwelling is on earth, and the Bible provides us no size dimensions of the new earth. And furthermore, since we are to be involved in the governance of all of the works of God's hands, I can't imagine any limited space in the real physical world which is to come. So it seems to me that the correct picture is of a redeemed human race living on earth who find that the holy city has open gates into which they are invited to frequently go. That is, the sea is no more. The barrier between God and man has forever been erased, and redeemed humanity is invited to come into the presence of the great king and to worship. Now to verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. It's a wonderful promise, and we do well to consider it carefully. You know, the first statement is that he will wipe away every tear from every eye of the children of God. So we need to ask, well, why have God's people been crying? For one, we weep because we live in a fallen world which which bears the effects of human sin. Psalm 39 is the psalm of David, and in this psalm, David is keenly aware of both the sins that have attended his own life as well as the wicked things that men have done to harm him. And as David considers this, he says, and here I'm quoting him in verse 4, O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am, he says. That is, in the middle of my struggle, help remind me that my lifespan is like nothing. How quickly the day will come and I'll die. And not only I, but every human being is a mere shadow of breath. And with that, David turns back to his own sin and his own rebellion against God. This mere breath has rebelled against infinite righteousness. And then reflecting on that, David prays, and here I'm, I'm quoting verse 12. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears. There are the tears of deep regret over our sins and the prayers of renewal. But then God's people are brought into the new world to come. The tears of past failures, the tears of what wicked men have done to us, the tears of physical pain, the tears of regret. Well, they're wiped from the eyes of God's people in place of sorrows, comfort, peace, and inner calm and even joy. The old order will never be back. Well, the second thing that's promised is that death shall be no more. And we know that death entered into this world as a consequence for sin. And and since that time, all of us have known that we are subject to death. Death stalks us. 
Whenever people talk about their lives, they talk of it within the, you know, within the limited frame of reference, which are our lives. You know, at this stage in my life, I've come to realize how many lies all of us live with. We speak about fulfilling our life's purpose, but in truth, your days are going to run out very quickly. You'll never fulfill your life's purpose. It will all end far too quickly, and you will soon be gone. So, child of God, place your hope in the world that will never end. Stop trying to achieve on this earth something that will never be yours on this earth. For the sake of Christ, sacrifice all your longings for this earth, because it only results in death. Sacrifice them for a world in which death is forever banished. You know, there's something I've noticed. A great many worship choruses that are sung in today's churches act as if in this life we will achieve joy and healing and satisfaction and release from everything that oppresses us. Turns out that's selling us on something that I can objectively say simply doesn't exist on this earth. We are not now on the new earth, but we should be saying that in the world to come, there will be the drying of every tear-filled eye. But it won't happen until that world comes. See, I want to end with Isaiah's wonderful promise found in Isaiah 35, verse 10. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be on their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Child of God, it may be that in this world, you're now living in a land of sorrow and sighing. Have hope, for the city to which you go will result in all sorrow fleeing away. John, is it possible that even we as Christians, we, we struggle and, and we suffer so much because we have this perspective of the, the here and now rather than an enduring hope of what's to come? Oh, boy, man, that's just, uh, there is a technical word for that. It's called realized eschatology. So you take the, the future promises that God gives his people, which are meant for eternity, which are meant for, you know, the, the new heaven and the new earth, and, and then we wonder why they're not happening for us today. You know, my response to this always is, you know, if, if you think that, you know, you have this realized eschatology view, you need to pick up Fox's Book of Martyrs or maybe read some of the great biographies of, of some missionaries who have suffered terribly for the gospel uh, but have continued to endure knowing that the morning will break and that they will come when all of this old order will be put aside. I mean, that is the Christian hope. We do not anticipate it in this world. Need to keep on saying that. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Triumph of the Lamb, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Sarah wrote, I have been saved for over 50 years, was just a little girl, in fact. Back to the Bible has been part of my life forever, and I've given to the ministry even out of my allowance when I was little. Dr. Newfeld brings scripture to life. There is depth yet practicality, challenge but hope. The world has changed, technology has made everything closer, ministries have changed. Yet, Back to the Bible has remained constant in its values and teachings. They have embraced technology while making sure the gospel is not diluted. You do a marvelous work, and I look forward to hearing you every day. Sarah, thank you. Friends like you make this Bible teaching ministry possible. If you have a story to share, or if you'd like to share a gift of support, call us today at 
2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.